0: Well, good morning. So we are going to be continuing in Zechariah and covering chapters 9 through 11. And uh, obviously, again, that's a fairly large section of scripture. Um, So we're just really going to be trying to hit on the the principles that I think summarize the sections we'll be looking at. And I think when we look at the flow of thought and when we understand the, the context of the thoughts as they're presented we're able to draw, I think, some of the most powerful and uh, heart-changing lessons from the scriptures here. And so the focus of the lesson is always, got, always in Zechariah on restoration. Uh, you remember that Zechariah and Haggai were two prophets who worked together to encourage the Jews to rebuild the temple because the work had stopped when they were originally sent to the Jews who were rebuilding it. And in chapter 8, verse 9, there's a verse that I think just kind of summarizes this mission when God tells them to let their hands be strong, that the temple might be built. God had punished and scattered the Jews among the nations because they had been rebellious for uh, nearly 800 years as they were a nation in that time frame, that God, until they had no, uh, there was no remedy left, He scattered them among the nations, but then had brought them back to Jerusalem to rebuild it because they had humbled themselves and repented. And so this was a time of restoration when God was working with them jealously, when he was earnestly seeking to reestablish them and reassure them and reinvigorate their zeal. But they had no king or military power. And this is going to be the focal point of chapters 9 through 11. They had no king. They had no military power. Their territory was greatly diminished. The temple was not nearly as glorious looking and their work was much more opposed compared to the time of Solomon when they had just complete peace, complete freedom, and the support of all the nations around them. This really wasn't the case in the rebuilding of the temple in this time frame. But God's promise was that he will fulfill and was actively fulfilling every promise he had ever made through their work. Uh, I just want to read very quickly uh, Acts chapter 3, a scripture that we ended on the last time we looked at Zechariah chapter 7 and 8, that God was fulfilling ancient promises that now we receive in Christ in a completed manner. So Acts chapter 3 verse 18 says, the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. There's so many scriptures we can look at in the New Testament that anchor us into a view of the prophets To understand that the prophets were speaking of things that give us a present perspective and a present purpose in Christ, to understand more vividly the glory of what we've received. And just as a reminder of an outline of the book, it's very simple. Chapters 1 through 6, Zechariah focuses on how God is removing all the obstacles that that are in the way of their work. Chapter 7 through 14, God emphasizes how he's going to give them power and grant them peace through their work. And these sections of the book are very parallel with one another. They both begin each half of the book with a a charge to renew repentance. And then they proceed into very vivid language. So the section we're going to look at is actually one oracle, which is really just very vivid picturesque prophecy. And uh, in some translations, it's called a burden because it includes heavy judgments. And we're going to see that in, in the text. And again, in a parallel, both of these halves of the book begin with God emphasizing how jealous He is for the nation to protect them, to bless them, to have unity with them, to be reunited with them completely, and to complete every work He had ever intended with Israel. And each half of the book concludes with an emphasis that the rule that God would gain through this work would be new, it would be complete and it would spread over all the world in chapter 14, verse 9. So turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. I'm going to start in verses 1 through 8, and we're going to start by looking at some promises that God gives concerning some of the surrounding nations around the Jews at this time. Zechariah chapter 9. And just one, one more note. God isn't really going to talk about the temple uh, from this point forward. Remember in the beginning of chapter 7, there were two years left in the time frame here until the temple would be finished, two years left. But at this point, the temple is going to be complete. The people were motivated, they were working on it, it was going to be done. And so now God is moving on to emphasize more promises and to give them an even more vivid understanding of what he would do through their zeal to do what he said. Verses 1 through 8. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, with Damascus as its resting place. For the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. And Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre built herself a fortress and piled up silver like dust, and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire." Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza too will writhe in great pain and Ekron for her expectation has been confounded. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza and Ashkelon will not be inhabited and a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Now remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. Then they also will be a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. But I will encamp around my house because of an army because of him who passes by and returns and no oppressor will pass over them anymore for now I have seen with my eyes so God is speaking mainly against Damascus against Tyre, Sidon and against some territory some different territories that would have been territories of the Philistines you see that at the end of verse 6 For instance, you have places like Gaza, Ekron, Ashkelon. These would have been places that in the time of David, people like Goliath would have been from these territories. The idea is God is tying up these loose ends, right? The main enemy that the the Jews had were really the greater world powers of this time. The work had originally stopped because Persia, the world power of this time, had sent an order to stop the work on the temple. These... (laughs) are nations that are not nearly as threatening or intimidating as the kingdom of Persia. But these are nations that in the past God had spoken about. In the past, God had pronounced judgments against these nations. And they're either going to be completely destroyed or in verse 7, they will be converted. The Jebusites were the original inhabitants of Jerusalem. And up until the time of David, the Jebusites inhabited Jerusalem. They were Canaanites. They were originally the people of the land that Israel had entered in. And so the people who are left, who are not destroyed, are going to end up either being, uh, well, they're going to end up either destroyed again or converted and become God's people as the Jebusites became a part of God's people within Jerusalem. Uh, There's a person in the time of David, Ornan, the Jebusite, Uh, He's the one actually who offered David the territory and the material to make a sacrifice to God after David had sinfully numbered the people and brought calamity on Jerusalem. So again, God is tying up every loose end in relation to his promises. God is not just looking so far into the future and how grand the future will be that he's lost sight of the present. God is working out every loose end, every promise he's ever made, and every battle that the people cannot fight, every conquest that they cannot even go in because they don't have the military strength. God is going to do it himself. God is acting as their king, and God is going to conquer nations as a king for the people even when they're unable to do it. So God is going to tie up every loose end in relation to his promises, but God also would impact everybody around the progress of his people. And this is very important. Even though these nations in majority would be impacted negatively, this still was progress for God's purpose. Do You remember Jesus? He said, do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, to set people within their households against one another. And the idea is, God desired that people who are around his people be confronted with the truth. And it's the same for us as well, that God desires that not only do we inherit the promises he's made to us, but that those around us, as he makes progress in our lives and builds our faith and builds our relationship with him, The desire is not just that we of ourselves are impacted by the grace of God, but that others around us, either for calamity or to be drawn and converted, that others around us are impacted by the presence of God in our lives, right? So not only is God able to tie up every loose end in our lives in relation to his promises, God seeks to impact others by that progress as well. Let's look at the rest of the chapter, verses 9 through 17. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners, who have the hope. This very day I am declaring that I will restore double to you, for I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill the bow with Ephraim, and I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and I will make you like a warrior sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning, and the Lord God will blow the trumpet, and will march in the storm winds of the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them, and they will devour and trample on the sling stones, and they will drink and be boisterous with wine, and they will be filled like a sacrificial basin, drenched like the corners of the altar. And the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they are as the stones of a crown sparkling in his land. For what comeliness and beauty will be theirs, grain will make the young men flourish, and new wine the virgin's. So the assurance God gives, as is woven throughout Zechariah, is assurance that the king was going to come, that God was bringing the one that he had been promising from ancient times, and he would come to them, and he would restore the nation to its glorified condition. Something that I think is important to note here, um, every gospel accounts for Jesus getting a colt, uh, a young donkey, and fetching it through his disciples and riding that donkey into Jerusalem to fulfill this prophecy, which is quoted in Matthew 21 and in John chapter 12. Um, those fulfillments of these images, these, pis- these picturesque prophecies that are given here, um, they give us an anchoring point to understand what exactly is all of this referring to. Just a couple other examples. You remember John the Baptist when he came and began preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It quoted a prophecy in Luke chapter 3. Mountains would be laid low, valleys would be filled, every ravine would be changed. So that everything would become flat and the, the condition of the land would be dramatically changed all of a sudden. But it says, well, that was speaking about John the Baptist, this messenger. And so you read that prophecy and you say, well, I mean, that sounds extraordinary, but really it's just some guy in camel's hair eating bugs preaching a message in the wilderness. I mean, what a letdown. But the point is not that John and his preaching and the response failed to fulfill the vivid nature of that prophecy. It's that we look too much at the appearance and we don't give enough glory to the power of God in converting the heart. That as we would react to mountains literally being brought into a flat uh, condition with the land and ravines being filled before our eyes, the amazement we would have is the amazement that we ought to have when we see God converting hearts through the message preached. You think about Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when uh, there was a simple sign that signified the fulfillment of the time when God would pour out his spirit on mankind. And there was a simple sign that drew the crowds to question, what is this? And it said, this is signifying the fulfillment of the last days that God had been announcing to the prophets for all time. So you have these anchoring points, God signaling that these, these uh, prophecies in their context are all pointing to the time when there would be things that looked by appearance very simple but were expressions of the outpouring of the power of God. So verse 9, Jesus was not going to come with spectacle. Again, John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus, was not dressed in royal garments. He wasn't by appearance some tough-looking guy who was very charismatic. He wasn't impressing people with his speech or his message. He was a very simple-looking person with a very simple message, with a very simple focus and Jesus in the same way was not going to come in the kind of spectacle you would expect from a king. And in fact, Jesus's ministry for those who were hoping for spectacle were very disappointed. Do you remember the Pharisees, even far into his ministry when Jesus had already performed many signs, they still said, "Teacher, show us a sign, show us a sign." And he would say, "No sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah," right? Jesus did not come with spectacle. But the result of his coming would exceed every possible expectation. And look at the results of this. So you look at verse 10 through 17, Jesus coming in humility. Jesus not coming with a sword and a shield, not coming with a conquering army to enter into the city of Jerusalem, coming as a man vulnerably riding on a donkey into the city that would crucify him on the cross. He opened the floodgates of God's promises. He made available the power of God so that Paul the Apostle could write in the New Testament that we need the eyes of our heart enlightened to know the power of God that is at work in us who believe. That he could write that we need to be strong in the strength of God and put on the full armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Jesus is coming, although it did not include a worldly spectacle, it fulfilled and exceeded every expectation and all of these magnificently vivid prophecies have all been completed and made available to us in Christ Jesus. The principle is we want results. We pursue methods that give results. If you think about people who are advertising like some new dietary supplement or workout plan, what do they do to draw you in, right? a lot of times we want to go on a diet or we want to do something fitness related, but we want to look for what is going to get us results. What Zechariah is going to focus on in this chapter and in the next is Jesus's method got results and only his message, only his method got the results that God had promised. So if we see through the lens of the prophetic perspective, We desire nothing except the method that God displayed in Jesus Christ. We don't assign power to the wrong method or to arrogant methods. We assign the power and glory to the method of God's vulnerability and humility. And I think we see that in verse 10. This is a very important verse to note before the extraordinary power that will be expressed as given to God's people in the preceding chapter. We need to see first that God's people are not going to be fighting in a worldly manner or with worldly methods. When Jesus would come in this humble manner, Jerusalem and Ephraim, chariots would be cut off, the horses would be given away, and the bow of war would be cut off. There's no need anymore. Those aren't the methods that are even thought of as effective anymore. And so they're all just abandoned and put away. The people follow the example of, because of the method and the result of the life that the king manifested. There's some important points in this. What is our model as a local church working together? How do we accomplish the spiritual work that God has called us to? What happens when the methods that God calls for in his word aren't impressive to the world? Maybe they don't give us as prominent a place or as loud a place in our community as maybe other churches in the community? What happens when it seems like the number of people we wish would come and be converted, we don't see those numbers, right? What do we do? Do we compromise? Do we look at other churches who are not doing things according to God's word as it's expressed? And do we begin to seek other methods to try to get different results? God sees things differently than we do. And what he's speaking of here is long-term, meaningful, heart-filling fruit. In verse 11 through 17, the image of God's people is extraordinary. People freed from the prison with double being restored to them, becoming a weapon of God's glory to go out and to trample on those who uh, are in conflict with God, to win a war that God's people have seen to have been hopelessly losing. They're saved and they become so beautiful in the land that God had promised to plant them in. It's a picture that's meant to be jealously sought after. So doing things God's way, this final point here, it's not meant to be a spectacle. It's just like Jesus as a king coming in this overlooked way. That when Jesus came into Jerusalem, it was not appreciated until he had risen from the dead and people were able to look back and realize the method that God had been using to accomplish a work they had not anticipated a mystery that had been hidden to be revealed to those who love God and the sending of his son god's not seeking to convert the world on the world's terms god seeks to convert on his terms And if we trust God, if we trust his method of power, if we understand the nature of his power, the effectiveness of his power, and the purpose of his power, we will stand firm in his methods without compromise. Churches compromise the truth. Local churches compromise the truth when they're no longer seeing the truth through the lens of the prophets. Chapter 10. We're going to start with verses 1 through 4. The rest of all of this, it's all going to be emphasizing leadership. Again, Jesus would come as a king to reveal the nature of God's leadership, the purpose of God's leadership. What direction is God seeking to bring his people to? Chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, how the king empowers his people. Ask rain from the Lord at the time of the spring rain, the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain, vegetation in the field to each man. For the teraphim speak iniquity and the diviners see lying visions and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted because there is no shepherd. My anger is kindled against the shepherds and I will punish the male goats. For the Lord of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like, a, like his majestic horse in battle. From them will come the cornerstone, from them the tent peg, from them the bow of battle, From them, every ruler, all of them together. The focal point of chapter 10 and 11 is that God is going to do something with the remnant within his nation to empower them and to expand the glory of his purpose among his people. Again, through the remnant that is among his people. We'll see that more in chapter 11. But the beginning of this chapter really emphasizes that in order to bring these things about, God still needs to judge the leaders of his people who are taking glory away from him, or falsely assigning glory. Think about Jesus's parents with verse four. So he's saying that from this remnant, those who are truly his sheep, those who are afflicted by the leaders who are falsely assigning glory or taking glory to themselves, from the remnants will come the cornerstone. What kind of people were Jesus's parents, Joseph and Mary? Were they powerful speakers among the Jewish nation? Were they leaders among the people? Was Joseph a Pharisee among Pharisee or a priest among priests? Joseph was not from the priestly line and although he was from the tribe of uh, Judah and even more specifically from David, was not a person who I think by appearance would seem like a kingly person. And Mary was just some quiet, humble woman who quietly dwelt among the nation of Israel Both of these people knew God so intimately that they could be entrusted with King of Kings and Lord of Lords. From the humble remnant would come the cornerstone. And again, God would bless this remnant to cause them to inherit the fullness of His promises and to be empowered by the things we see in the preceding verses. Let's look at verses 5 through 12. They will be as mighty men, treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets in battle, and they will fight. For the Lord will be with them, and the riders on horses will be put to shame. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them back, because I have had compassion on them. And they will be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Ephraim will be like a mighty man, and their heart will be glad as if from wine. Indeed, their children will see it and be glad. Their heart will rejoice in the Lord." I will whistle for them to gather them together for I have redeemed them and they will be as numerous as they were before. When I scatter them among the peoples, they will remember me in far countries and they with their children will live and come back. I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria and I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no room can be found for them and they will pass through the sea of distress and he will strike the waves in the sea that all the depths of the Nile will dry up and the pride of Assyria will be brought down and the scepter of Egypt will depart. And I will strengthen them in the Lord and in his name they will walk, declares the Lord. So I think the first focal point here is that God was going to gather his sheep together and they would be overwhelmingly empowered when they would be gathered. Just as a reference point, so chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11 they all have New Testament reference points that, again, help us to be anchored down to understand that these things are very vivid pictures of what's fulfilled in Christ. John chapter 11, verse 52, is speaking of the, the death that Jesus would die, um, that it would be done in order that he might gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And again, this this language is meant to be an anchoring point that what are we to understand about this time frame when God is going to gather everybody together into one and empower them to accomplish his purpose. It's fulfilled in Christ and the church. Further, with the idea of being empowered in these ways, I think it's important to understand what that really looks like. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I want to look at a longer section here uh, just to try to emphasize again uh, how can we understand the fulfillment of these very vivid prophecies? We'll read the scripture and then I'll bring up these principles that are listed on the board here. First Corinthians chapter 1, 21 through chapter 2, verse 5. How does God empower his people and how does this relate to leadership? Because remember again, the emphasis is on leadership. First Corinthians 1, verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, The world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased with the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boast boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except cru- Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God. The principle is this we don't realize how weak we are until we do what requires a new kind of strength And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what Paul Paul is emphasizing is that in serving God and in being transformed into the image of his glory and his holiness, that there is a new strength that's not of the world, but is only found in the method of Christ and his cross and resurrection. Maybe to illustrate this, um, when I was younger, um, there was a period of time where I tried to get in shape and work out extensively. And I remember when I was younger, I did a lot of like strength training. So it's like low reps of, you know, pushing weights, but then high weight. And I remember traveling with my family um, to visit some friends in another state. And just for fun, we went somewhere where there was rock climbing. And I remember everybody joking around that like, by my appearance, it looked like, well, hey, I should be able to climb the rock wall fairly easily. And as soon as I started, my arms were shaking out of control. And my entire arm up to my shoulder and my back <laughs> was an incredible pain. Because the strength that I had wasn't practical. <laughs> and it wasn't the kind of strength that really equips you to do something with rock climbing. It's a, it uses your muscles in an entirely different way. And so really, any strength that looked like I had, really in regard to that exercise was very deceptive in its appearance. Really, I had no strength for doing that kind of exercise. But that wasn't clear until I tried to put my hand to it to do it. And the principle is when when we put our hand into serving God, when we really give ourselves to serving him, it draws out our helplessness, but it magnifies the power of God that is given in Christ to equip us for service. So the power that Zechariah is talking about is not the kind of spectacle that we're seeing in the world. And just as I may have looked like I could climb that, that rock wall, but in reality, I couldn't. Any strength that it looks like the world has, as Paul emphasizes in 1 Corinthians, any strength that it seems like the world has is a lie. That when we serve God, when we are really giving ourselves to understand what it means to be holy, we find real strength, substantial strength in Christ. And again, it's the method of the humility and character of Jesus, evidence in his death on the cross and resurrection, that seals the evidence of God's method to bring us into his holy glory. Let's look at chapter 11. Again, moving at a somewhat brisk pace just to kind of get the flow of thought. God is going to continue to emphasize leadership. So in chapter 10, we get the positive side of it. God is going to bless the remnant. He's going to empower them in his name. There's going to be this new exodus in verse 11 where God is going to strengthen them in his name and cause them to walk in his name. In chapter 11, we get the negative side of it. The remnant will be blessed, but the reality is there is still a physical nation and that simply is not possible to, per- to keep uh, perpetually. So chapter 11, verses one through three. This is how the king shepherds the sheep. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that a fire may feed on your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen. Because the glorious trees have been destroyed. Wail, O Oaks of Bashan, for the impenetrable forest has come down. There is a sound of the shepherd's wail, for their glory is ruined. There is a sound of the young lion's roar, for the pride of the Jordan is ruined. So again, this is a very picturesque image here of God going, of God ransacking a heavily protected heavily forested pasture and it seems so impenetrable and secure but it's all going to be brought down and destroyed why and that's verses 4 through 14 so we'll read that before I move on the slides thus says the Lord my God pasture the flock doomed to slaughter those who buy them slay them and go unpunished and each of those who sell them says blessed be the Lord for I have become rich and their own shepherds have no pity on them I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land declares the Lord but behold I will cause the men to fall each into another's power into the power of his king and they will strike the land and I will not deliver them from their power so I pastured the flock now just pause this is a very strange section but this is, it's a living illustration where God is commanding Zechariah the prophet to in some way pasture the people as a flock and this is going to be a living illustration by Zechariah working as a leader among the people of God. And we're going to see how this plays out in a way that parallels Christ and again, a very living and vivid way. Verse 7 again. So I pastured the flock doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted of the flock. And I took for myself two stabs, the one I called favor and the other I called union. So I pastured the flock. Then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month for my soul was impatient with them and their soul also was weary with me. Then I said, I will not pasture you. What is to die, let it die. And what is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated. And let those who are left eat one another's flesh. I took my staff favor and cut it in pieces to break my covenant, which I had made with all the people. So it was broken on that day and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. I said to them, if it is good in your sight, Give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Then I cut in pieces my second staff union to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So again, this is a living illustration. It's very vivid And it's meant to be seen in a way that illustrates spiritual principles and points. Again, Zechariah is told to shepherd the flock doomed to slaughter. And this this does not go well. So there are three shepherds in verse 8, which I'm imagining would be some kind of of leadership, three people in leadership positions. But everyone just ends up becoming weary of the situation at the end of verse 8. So Zechariah just determines he's not going to pasture this flock what is to die, let it die, what is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated, and let them self-destruct. So he asks for wages. Imagine you're working for a company for three months and when you ask for what they deem you to be worth, they write you a check for fifty dollars for a month's work, right? Would that show respect for what you had done with the company at all? Thirty pieces of silver in Exodus 21 verse 32 is the price that would be given to an owner of a slave if the slave had been killed by an ox. So they deemed Zechariah's work for this month as being worth that amount of money, which was meant to be incredibly insulting. And you see God's frustration in this, in verse 13, because God said, throw it to the potter. And this next statement, I read sarcastically, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. And so he throws it to the potter. And this signifies the, the end of the union that Zechariah had signified in these, these staffs he had had. And then verse 15 through 17, I'll read these and we'll just make some concluding points. The Lord said to me, take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, seek the scattered, heal the broken, or sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hoofs. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. His arm will be totally withered and his right eye will be blind. And so God is going to abandon them to receive shepherds that reflect the overall condition of the sheep. There cannot be the exaltation of God's remnant without the judgment of the greater nation at large in their leadership. There cannot be union with God without separation that comes from God's judgment. So, Zechariah is given 30 pieces of silver. Can you think about anyone else who tried to lead God's people and shepherd them and was valued by a wicked person or a wicked people even for 30 pieces of silver? And just as Zechariah threw this to the potter, that money that was paid for Jesus to be abandoned by Judas was paid for the potter's field. Again, this vivid prophecy, that simple but specific fulfillment we see in Jesus' life signifies that these principles within this illustration were fulfilled in Jesus' life. That Jesus did everything he could to shepherd a flock doomed to slaughter. And they grew weary of him, and so they abandoned him and crucified him. And so it wasn't just the physical nation of Israel, but it was that remnant that would be saved and redeemed. And there would be judgment and separation to gather that remnant together to follow the leadership of the shepherd. You remember our Wednesday night study that Cody just led? In verse 17, woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. Do you remember in John 10 when Jesus spoke of those? who abandoned the sheep at time of need, but that he called himself the good shepherd and that he came to give life and to give it more abundantly. But shepherds reflect the condition of the sheep. And so in order to follow Jesus' shepherding, our condition needs to be changed. Good leaders don't just automatically solve the condition of bad people or rebellious people or stubborn people. God allows shepherds that reflect the condition of the sheep. So a very practical principle is shepherds of a local church are going to reflect the condition of the church they're shepherding. Good shepherds at a local church are not just going to automatically solve an issue of rebellious and stubborn Christians. And oftentimes shepherds are not going to even understand a proper work of shepherding if they have not been working towards that end already. As members serving one another. It's far too common for elders to shepherd a church in a worldly manner. You know I don't doubt that great things were obviously happening the time of Zechariah and yet when Ezra comes into Jerusalem later there are serious problems of leadership when he comes and I don't doubt that Ezra's reforms were very effective and that Ezra was a good godly leader and yet when Nehemiah comes sometime later still there is a serious problem with the leadership that he finds in Jerusalem, despite Ezra's reforms. And so I don't doubt that despite these generally good things that God is working with, that the intimacy of Zechariah's involvement in this manner exposed a deeper and more catastrophic fault that could only be solved with a change of covenant, with the change of covenant that Jesus brought with his death. Jesus brought change because he manifested the glory of the Father's love, his concerns and his values. Jesus is a good shepherd because he does what they were not doing in verse 16. Jesus cared for the perishing. Jesus sought the scattered. Jesus healed the broken and sustained those who were standing. And if we want to have shepherds One day, that are appropriately shepherding the flock of God here. What we need here are men who are seeking the scattered, who are caring for those who are perishing, and who are noticing and are concerned for those who are perishing. We need men who are wise to understand the condition of those who are broken and how to work with God to bring healing. And what we need are men who understand the importance. Of sustaining those who are standing, that they not be weary and overcome with discouragement. We need to be seeking and embracing this quality of fellowship. Very practically, we just need to be very open to being challenged in our faith. You know, I don't doubt that things were generally happening in a positive way here, but when Zechariah got more personal, that's when the catastrophe was exposed. We need to be willing to be asked hard questions. We need to be willing to be asked deeply personal questions about where we are in our faith and what our ambitions are in our faith. We need to be willing to be worked with, to work with the brethren, and to grow in serving our brethren and serving God. And we need to recognize the counsel and wisdom we need from one another as we strive to work together in humility. And we need to be careful that when we're challenged that we do not kick against someone wanting to be more personally invested in our lives and in our faith. If we just come together and assemble together and enjoy our time in this event of assembling, but then are not striving for interaction and spiritual connection throughout the week, it should be no surprise that if we get elders one day who are appointed that they aren't men who simply organize and work with the church on a very generic level rather than a very personal level far too often elders shepherd the church as if they're running some kind of worldly business and they'll deal with how the assemblies are organized they'll make financial decisions but as far as people's personal condition there's no work that's happening this cannot be the direction we're headed as a local church. And we, in verse 16, it mustn't be said of us that we are not caring for the perishing, seeking the scattered, healing the broken, or sustaining the one standing. God empowers us to this end, and it's in Christ that we see the power and the value of all that God commands and focuses on in his kingdom. I want to conclude um, Back in verse 10, the invitation is to be stripped. Jesus came in simplicity. God's wisdom is so simple. It is so easy to overlook in its form because it simply has no appeal to the world when the world is lost in its own worldly thinking. When the world is obsessively seeking the things that it values apart from God. When he said, I'm going to cut off the chariot, the horse, and the bow of war, he's speaking of a people who allow themselves to be stripped so that they can live in the simplicity of his peace and his values. The invitation is to see that God has accomplished all of these promises and is begging with us to see that there is salvation that he is freely offering but that the things that we highly esteem within the world and dependent from him are an abomination that will keep us from the gates of heaven and eternal life if we allow it. So the invitation is to come to hear the call, to be empowered by his grace and to see the strength he provides, not by merit of your work, but simply by the graciousness of his loving kindness and faithful mercies that God is willing to receive you to come and to uh, bring your needs, your wishes forward as we stand and sing the invitation song.